is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, May 10th, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. Taylor Swink is working from the Swink Studios today, and Sarah Abbott is not here. Taylor, when's she going to be back? Sarah Abbott will be back on Friday. She'll be back Woo-hoo. in my stead. I'll be off. I'll be off in uh, Louisville. Off in Louisville. I'm going to watch some Ponies Buster. I'm excited. Go to some bourbon Maybe. tastings right up my alley. I don't know if somebody told, like, the Kentucky Derby was last weekend. Did you get that memo? I did. I did. And, you know, the tickets are cheaper uh, when you don't go to the actual Kentucky Derby. If you just go to Churchill Downs. We're going to see some night races. I got a nice new bow tie. I'm very excited. Some green pants. I'll send you a picture. Yeah. And, boy, am I going to veer off here uh, off the topic of baseball. Do you see that video of the guy getting clocked and, like, blood pouring down his face in that brawl at the Derby the other day? No, I didn't. But that is so unsurprising. I've been to the Preakness a couple times. I I feel like these horse races, man, it's just like an all-day tailgate. So not surprising that just – People boozing all day long, and then things get a little bit wild. So that's unfortunate. Except those guys have bow ties on, and they're wearing suits when they're brawling. <laughs> you you got to find that. It was like, wow. Uh, all right. So last night, Astros and Angels, Shohei Otani was on the mound in Anaheim, and he was leading one to nothing when Martin Maldonado came to the plate in the top of the fifth inning. Here's the pitch. Swing on. This one hit hard and deep to left field, going back on it again. And that ball is gone. A two-run home run by Martin Maldonado, and the Astros take a 2-1 to lead. Yeah, that from KBME, 7.90 a.m. It was 2-1 to in the bottom of the sixth inning. Framber Valdez, who seems to have this incredible uh, knack for getting out of jams. This is what he did with Anthony Rendon at the plate. Try to hold up, and he does not. That's a strikeout. Rendon went too far. That'll be strikeout number nine for Fromber. Strikes out three in the inning and strands two. Astros still lead. This was impressive. He goes to that cutter. It's been a great pitch for him today. Rendon anticipating something else. Couldn't hold up. 3-1 Astros into six. Todd Callis, Jeff Blum there uh, on that. The Astros wound up winning the game 3-1. Excellent outing by Valdez. Taylor's Orioles played the Rays last night. Game two of a series between two really good teams, and Adley Rutschman went deep. Adley crushes one. Deep right field. Way back it goes, and that baby is long gone. That, that, see, it didn't feel like it did it justice. Taylor, I need you to describe that home run more. Uh, that sound from WBAL. Buster, I described it as a howitzer shot on Twitter and it went over the over the uh the outfield fence and when i say fence like the fence right. it was the out of the park right field. over the fence onto utah street uh they marked it immediately so they'll put a little placard down on on the street there where it hit i think that might be his first one that he's he's gotten all the way to utah street it was it was awesome great win yeah. for the boys last night yeah, the trajectory, too. That's what jumped out. Like you said, uh, I mean, it absolutely had that parabola feel to it. The Reds, the Mets playing last night in Cincinnati, and Cincinnati grabbed a big lead early in the game. Cradle to right center. That gets down. Gathered on the track by Nimmo. Around third, Myers. He comes home. Newman sent home through to the plate. It gets by. Cradle turns, slams on the brakes. He drives in two, 6-1 Reds. 
Now, during the uh, bottom of the fifth inning, there's, there was this weird play where a batter hit the ball and Francisco Lindor was going to catch it and the base runner going from, uh, from first base to second base. Uh, the ball hit his hand and bounced away. Lindor immediately was pointing at the runner, asking for interference. Buck Showalter went out there and argued. Runner goes, fisted, ground ball off the glove of Lindor as Meyer slid in. See, Lindor tries to hold the bag. And I think what Lindor is talking about is the hand. Look at the hand of Will Myers. It interferes with Lindor actually catching the ball. And Showalter's been tossed. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear the explanation on that one because I got to say, like, by the rule book, my instinct was is that as the, the fielder's going for the ball, that Will Myers' hand, you know, hitting the ball in front of the glove, to me, makes it interference. Buck was furious. He, he was upset, uh, especially with the Mets not playing well. Maybe he's trying to light a fire under the Mets, and that seemed to work because they came back. They loaded the bases in the eighth inning with Mark Canna due to bat. Luis Guillorme was inserted as a pinch hitter. The 2-2. He didn't want to do it, and he went around chasing a slider in the dirt. Guillorme strikes out, and the Mets leave him loaded. That from 700 WLW. Yeah, so just a bunch of crazy stuff going on last night. The Mets wound up losing this game 7-6. Buck gets ejected, and he talked with the reporters after the game about that play. I just saw it differently. It's pretty obvious what it was, but it's hard to imagine four guys not being able to see what happened. There's about three ways you can get that play right. They, they didn't want, you know, we had opportunities for it to not matter. We just didn't pitch very well early on. Pete was struggling. Another day, another round of injuries in baseball. On Monday, Braves ace Max Fried was placed on the injured list with a strained left forearm. Freed said before Tuesday night's game against the Boston Red Sox that he was relieved and MRI showed no structural problems with his elbow. The Braves' hope is that he's going to be back in a few weeks. Noah Syndergaard of the Dodgers left the game last night after just one inning because of a cut finger. Kyle Schwarber fouled the ball off his foot uh, in the Phillies game against the Toronto Blue Jays last night. He had to come out. He had x-rays. Those initial uh, images came back negative. He'll be reevaluated later today. And before that Mets game in Cincinnati, bad news for them. Max Scherzer was scratched from that start on Tuesday night because of neck spasms. Here's Max addressing his injury. Woke up yesterday with a bad neck spasm. Uh, when I woke up, I was locked. Uh, told the team, uh, you know, we came in on the off day yesterday. Um, you know, just it was a neck spasm. Um, you know, and so just on the treatment, uh, there's really nothing you can do for it other than rest. Take you know, take some anti-inflammatories and go. I mean, it's going to be a couple days, uh, but that's a good news. It's only going to be a couple days. Um, you know, so. That's the unfortunate news. The Baltimore Orioles play second baseman Ramon Arias on the 10-day injured list before Tuesday night's game. Taylor, what's up with all these injuries? Seems like every day we got to talk for five minutes about injuries. It's lame, man. And it, uh, th- I mean, this particular injury, a lot of uh, chatter in Baltimore about who among these out- these infield prospects is going to uh, turn up here. Probably Joey Ortiz, but Jordan Westberg also in the mix. Who knows, Buster? Yeah, we'll see what happens. We're going to be talking with Bukshabi coming up about the rash of pitching injuries we've seen this year and ask him, does he think it's the pitch clock? Does he think it's something else? The Braves hosted the Red Sox last night, and Matt Olson gave the Braves, who've been scoring so many runs in the first inning, 
even more runs. Pitch on the way to Matt Olson. That is slugged to deep right field. Way back to the chop house. Fire in the hole. That is on the roof of the chop house. 2-0 Atlanta. That from 680, the fan, yeah, two batters into the game at the bottom of the first. The Braves had a 2-0 lead. They wound up winning 9-3. Charlie Morton threw well in that game. Jorge Soler had a fantastic game for the Marlins against the D-backs, smacking two homers to travel to combine 900 feet. Ooh. Oh, boy, Jorge Soler. Whoa. Oh, my goodness. Where did that one end up? A three-run homer for Jorge Soler. 468 feet from home plate. Ron, I'm not sure, but I think he got all of that one. My goodness. It's a high fly. It's going deep to left center. It's not going deep as the last one, but the job gets done again. Multi-home run game, Jorge Soler. Slowly but surely, the Seattle Mariners are playing better. Uh, They faced the Rangers yesterday, and they took a lead of 2-0 in the bottom of the third. Heaney comes out of the chest, the lefty's pitch. Swing, ground ball, left side and through. Ty France, a base knock to left. Murphy scores. Haggerty's coming home. Here's a throw. It hits off the bat. The bat up the third base line. It uses the bat like a ramp. And it goes over Himes' glove. And Haggerty scores. That from Seattle Sports 7, 10 a.m. The final score there, 5 to nothing. We're going to be talking with Jared Kelnick of the Mariners on the podcast later. And also, Lindsay Berra, who's the executive producer of the new documentary on her grandfather, Yogi Berra. Really fun conversation. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, to uh, all the listeners out there, if you want to see Jared Kelnick's face, you should go to Buster's Instagram page at Buster Only. We'll be posting some clips over there this afternoon and uh, the low post and the hoop collective with Brian Windhorst. As always, more NBA action last night. The Denver Nuggets take a 3-2 lead in their series. And uh, who play? Oh, yeah, the 76ers. They, they're up 3-2 on the Boston Celtics. Uh, really enjoyed both of those games last night. So check out the low post and the hoop collective wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and on YouTube. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. The man. Swing and a high fly ball out towards left field. The voice. That one well struck. The legend. On its way, out of here. Chiambi on Baseball Tonight. And this place is going bananas. Yeah, Book Shambi, the legend. Book, that never gets old for me. Like I, I you know, I get goosebumps when I hear that open for you. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it reminds me not to take myself too seriously. <laughs> no, I totally take it literally. Like you're, you know, you're the legend, <laughs> which is why I need you today. I need you at a time when uh, you you're around the St. Louis Cardinals because they're playing the Cubs now, the team that you uh, do play by play for on the Marquee Network on a regular basis, and you know Wilson Contreras. Yeah. So let's just I'll give you the floor to start out with. What was your take on everything that uh, that happened the last four or five days with Wilson Contreras? I mean, I guess a couple of things. I was surprised that they felt compelled to make an announcement about what was going to happen. I was surprised that they elected to do it right before playing the Cubs. Um, I guess I was a little surprised they signed him, to be honest with you. Um, It's, and then I would also, my editorial comment would be, this is not where this is going right now. He was signed to a five-year contract. They have Lars Newtbar, Dylan Carlson, Jordan Walker in the minors, Tyler O'Neill uh, on the IL. They have an aging Paul Goldschmidt. They have a Nolan Arenado north of 30. They don't have spots in the outfield, and they're going to need the DH. So they're going to circle back, in my opinion, on – figuring out him as a catcher, but I don't know to come out and publicly announce what they announced. It struck me as a little bit odd. Tell me what uh, you saw in his reaction, just being there in Chicago. I mean, he's, he's a, a big personality and he definitely likes playing the villain. He plays hard. Um, I think he enjoyed all of it. I think he ultimately knows that the Cubs fan base, the first thing they think of is he's part of that 2016 team. He's a three-time all-star. You know, now he's on the bad guy's side, but I, I think that he, I think that he knew, you know, if he came back in in a Royals uniform, I don't know that it would quite, I don't know that they'd be booing him like that. He did make some comments about the Cardinal way that maybe some fans uh, internalized a bit uh, as sort of an indirect cheap shot at the, at the Cubs. But ultimately I I think he likes, you know, being in the center of attention. All right. So I'm going to give you some thoughts on the Cardinals and see if you agree with me on this. There's a part of me that does admire the fact that they were aggressive and saying, you know what, despite that contract, whatever anybody thinks about us signing the contract, this is where we are now. It's been a terrible start, and we need to get this right. And we are willing to create this awkward situation and push this guy to the side to uh, make the pitching and the catching better. So there's a part of me that sort of admires that, because there would be some teams you and I have seen which they would ride out a guy, even if it was an ill-fitting player, for year after year after year because of the size of the contract. But on the other hand, <laughs> I also feel like there's no chance that Wilson Contreras goes back to being an everyday catcher this year because what you know, we've seen happen in recent days is what's going to continue to happen. They start to win. They have too much talent. The divisional context is such that they could easily be at the top of the division by the middle of June uh, by winning a bunch of games. And they probably have a sense that, you know what, uh, we're going to say that we're going to work on Wilson coming back as a catcher 
But the pitching is going to get better. Eventually, the team will regress to the positive, uh, you know, mean or uh, improve to the positive, and then everyone's going to go like, "Well, then we have to keep Kisner at catcher." So, my slight disagreement would be: I mean, the Pirates just went through a stretch where they lost seven straight, and they gained one game. I think that they definitely can do it, but it's going to be a longer slog to get back to the top of the division. I think that that's what they've done here. So like, this is more a July thing, in my opinion, Okay, uh, it's going to take some time. I, I would also say this, you know, getting pitching and catching on this, you know, their two strike numbers are terrible. Um, you know, the pitchers are allowed to shake off. Yes. Not a young staff, man. This yes. is Clarity, Miles Michaelis, Adam Wainwright, Jordan Montgomery. Like these dudes have been around. Um, so I don't, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Um, at this point, I guess my first thought was just, I think you guys had would have this figured out. So look, I would tell you there's so much talent on that team. I think it'll end up they're going to end up being fine. Um, but, yeah, they got off to to a bad start. Arnado does not look good swinging the bat, and they've been a pretty middling defense. I would also make this point. I think this is something we always, you know, the the analytically the way it works in my brain is I do – I don't love defensive metrics, but there's always enough there to give you a little something. And when we talk about pitching – most of the time, we're not really talking about pitching. We're talking about run prevention, and you can't forget that. So when you're talking about a Cardinal team the last couple of years that was second and first in turning ground balls into outs, and now they're 16th, their defensive efficiency is next to last in the majors. Some of the time when we're talking about pitching, we're really talking about defense. Their defense has regressed this year. Why it'd be hard for me to to say necessarily. Um, you know, obviously not having Bader out there every day in center has got to be at least a little bit of a factor. But I, again, I, I just you got to remember it's about stopping runs. So really, you have hitting offense, and then you have pitching and defense. It's not hitting pitching defense. The pitching and the defense are married together. So again, my point is. A lot of the times when we're talking about what's going on with their pitching, what we're really saying is what's going on with their pitching and their defense. And their defense so far this year has not been very good. And I do think Contreras is an easy scapegoat for, you know, players yeah. struggling on the team. So, the, I mean, it's not my department. It just they, – they're off to their worst start since 1973. They're not used to it, you know. Their manager got into, you know, a head-to-head with one of their players earlier. You know, it was loud and uh, uncharacteristic for the Cardinals. And, yeah, I don't know. This It feels a little – it's got a little blame the new guy feel to it. Yeah, no doubt. And I would say this, you know, Adam Wainwright – has has been a great pro in his career. Uh, I think he's an excellent teammate. And to see him, you know, give the comments, Wilson's our guy and we're talking to him and all that. I kind of, you know, that's a case where I feel like no matter what is said, no matter what you try to do, it's going to be awkward. 
<laughs> you know, what else yeah. is he going to say? I mean, this to me is Adam just trying to trying to dress up a kind of an ugly situation and plow through and hope they start playing better. Yeah, and I think they will. And they yep. will. And they take it the first two, so – well, we thought of Jack Flaherty as being a guy who, if the Cardinals were to you know, take a step forward this year, he would be at the forefront of that. Uh, I was watching your broadcast last night. You jumped on right away, like how the, his diminished his velocity was last night. It was shocking. And it almost got to a point during the course of that game where you could feel in his body language, he started throwing more breaking stuff and, you know, mixing a curveball to go along with the slider. It was almost like last night, watching that start, he was like, you know what? This is who I am now. You know, this is with a diminished velocity. Yeah, he didn't appreciate the questions on velocity post game from the Cardinals media. Yeah, it's different. Look, in 2019, um, he was one of the better pitchers in the league. He finished fourth in the league in the Cy Young voting. Um, I, you know, since then, he's basically. You know, he pitched close to 200 innings that year and basically combined 20, 21, 22. He's pitched about that many total. So it's availability as well. I mean, with a, you know, I guess torn oblique and then the shoulder issues. So where is he now? And he's he's got to figure it out. And will he ever get back to being that guy he was in 19? I think is, you know, one of the questions. So I wanted to ask you today about pitching injuries. Uh, you know, I've heard from from various people around the sport, not not a high volume of people, but there are some people believe that the rash of pitching injuries, the increase that Jeff Passan wrote about a couple of weeks ago, that they're related in part to the pitch clock. And, and boo, I got to say my instinct is I just don't believe it. I just think this is the, you know, the, the good side of all the pitchers working on velocity, going max effort deliveries, uh, spinning the baseball. The good side is you get more swing and miss from the pitcher's perspective. This is the downside that they're essentially working against their natural physiology. What do you think? I mean, you've been watching baseball your whole life. You know pitching. What's your gut instinct as to why we're seeing this? Um, I don't know, you know, what I, – I think that it goes more towards max effort in a condensed period of time, and that's been – that's been going on. I mean, again, it, it's harder to hit right now than ever, period, full stop. Yes. It's, it's harder to hit now than ever. They throw every pitch as hard as possible. Um, I think I, I would be inclined to agree with you. My first instinct is not nah, probably doesn't have to do with the pitch clock. I would also maintain that it's something that the league – looked at um, if they thought there was a real risk for it. Uh, I would say it would have shown up in the data. And I would say that the players association would have said something. So again, I, you know, I understand that there are some guys that are going to be bothered by it. And I understand that there are going to be some people that will point to the pitch clock, but you know, right now, look, we're, you know, we're not even, seven weeks into the season. So I, I'm not quite sure you can really even do, there's way more pitching injuries. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, uh, although the numbers are stark, you know, and you're right, it's a smaller sample size, so we'll see where they go during the course of the year. Uh, it was you who really highlighted this whole issue for me. I remember sharing a radio broadcast with you during the uh, pandemic year in the postseason, and it was a game where the Dodgers took a, like an 11-1 lead over the Braves. It was early, and, you know, I, I went to my old school thought like, okay, well, they're, you know, both teams, the rest of this game will go very quickly, because the relievers will all come in and they'll pound the strike zone and hitters will swing at the first pitch. And you're like, nope, that's not baseball anymore. And last night during your broadcast, you mentioned to Jim Deshays uh, and Joe Girardi, there's not a fastball count anymore. <laughs> that's not what's in baseball with the way pitchers work. It's not. And, I, you know, everybody's being evaluated. I mean, the, the one thing I, I was walking out of a game – with uh, with Tony Gwynn Jr. Uh, when the Padres were in town and we were just talking about the one thing, whatever you want to say, these guys don't give away at bats now. They gave away at bats back in the day. It's 14 to 1, some guys up there, swing at the first pitch, let's get out of here. Yeah. With the umpires being evaluated on every pitch. So whether it's Ryan Wills or, uh, or Jeff Nelson, um, like they don't want their grade to be bad. But the other thing too, you know, a, a good example of it over the course of the last seven, eight years, the Yankees are up 10-1 and Brett Gardner's at the plate and it's 2-0 in the eighth inning and a pitch on the outside edge that's an inch and a half off the plate gets called a strike and Brett Gardner's arguing with the umpire and he's not alone. But that's where we are in a 10-1 game. It's like I I need to compete in this at bat. Um, so that's one of the things that, you know, has happened. Because these guys are now aware that every single thing is being evaluated every second, they compete in that manner. And the umpires, too. So you don't get the giant strike zone for the most part when the game gets out of hand. Um, it's just different. And you don't get your auto – 2-0 fastball, 3-1 fastball. You just don't. No, and that actually underscores what you were essentially saying that, uh, you know, about max effort. That's throughout games. That, I mean, that is from batter one to last batter of the game. It is now no max effort not only with the delivery but with the way the game is played for sure. And there's some great parts of that, and I, I do wonder if all these injuries are the downside of that. Uh, real quick before you go, the way the Mets season, give me 30 seconds on the Mets season. Max Scherzer has an injury. It feels like this is playing out like a worst-case scenario for the Mets where all this age is manifesting in the rotation. Look, I, I think that when they're right, they got a pretty darn good lineup. Um, but the bottom line is that if they are going to make a deep run into the playoffs, they need – a very healthy and very effective Justin Verlander and a very healthy and very effective Max Scherzer. And if they don't, it's not going to happen. I mean, that's, that's really the bottom line. You just, you've got to have those two guys dealing. Um, so again, it is early. So however it, it plays out, they need to get into the playoffs and they need to have those two guys healthy and really, really good. So I don't, you know, as much we're going to analyze it today, May 10th, but it's, it's really going to be more relevant when we start talking about it in September. Yep. No question. When am I going to see you again working on ESPN radio? 
Uh, I will be there on Sunday. Sweet. Okay, Booth. That sounds great. Thanks for doing this. You got it, Busters. Great to see you. Jared Kelnick plays for the Seattle Mariners and is having a breakout season. Uh, Jared, I talked to a longtime executive the other day who was talking about watching you on television, uh, hitting balls in, in Wrigley Field. He hit one to straightaway center field, 482 feet. He says he's never seen a ball hit there before. What's this year been like for you? Uh, you know, it's been fun. Um, you know, I right now I think what I'm doing really well is just trying to simplify things, making sure I'm on time for the fastball and trying to stay middle of the other way. And um, I think, you know, if I can continue to do that, uh, the results will be wh- what they what they are at the end of the year. Tell me about sort of how that how you got into that process during the off season and, and when you sort of dove into those uh, adjustments. Yeah, you know, I obviously hadn't had uh, enough consistent success uh, in the big leagues to be content with, you know, where I was at with my swing. And I kind of just wanted to dive in and really understand the swing, how it works and, uh, and what I'm trying to do. Uh, that's the biggest thing. Cause you got to have a plan when you're going up there trying to do something. Um, so for me, it was learning how to stay inside the baseball and uh, allow myself to drive the ball the other way with authority. And um, that's kind of really helped me, uh, on off-speed pitches as well as, you know, fastballs as well. Was there a moment in a, in a workout or a day or a time when you felt like, boy, I, I feel like I'm getting getting to where I want to get to? Yeah, uh, I talked about it in an article earlier. Um, I I was in, a, in the cage. I had been working, like, didn't do any batting practice for an entire week. And uh, on the last day, uh, after I'd done a bunch of drills, working on staying inside the ball, the bat path, I kind of just – took what I learned for the first six days. And on the seventh day, you know, first got a first pitch. Um, I caught it. I was a little late, caught it super deep, shot it line drive, right. It's like would have been the third baseman. And I was like, oof, like that was sweet. Like I was late. I didn't panic. And I just drove it that way. And then the next pitch, he goes down and in and I scoop it for a homer to like, right. would have been right center, not right, like right center, more center. And I, right away I turned and looked at the, guys I was working with and I was like, man, I've, I haven't done that like forever or maybe ever like to be able to catch something deep, shoot it and then be perfectly on time and catch it for to right center for a homer. I was like, this is it. Like, this is where I need to be. Where was, where was that? And I'm curious about the reaction that you got from those guys that you were working with. Uh, they laughed. Uh, they, uh, they were laughing just because I was in shock that, I mean, I was in shock probably as much as they were. Um, but it was in California. I had worked with a few hitting coaches out there and, um, you know, they, uh, it was, it was a fun day for sure. I'll never forget that one. So I had a, you know, Trevor Hoffman's a hall of fame closer. Uh, and he was actually drafted as a shortstop. He played in the minor leagues. He, they went to him and they said, look, we're going to have to shift you to a pitcher. What do you feel about that? And right near the end of his career, I asked him, what do you think it didn't work out for you as a shortstop? He goes, I just couldn't deal with the over force. He just said it was just too much, the over force. How did you deal with that the last two years and keep forward facing in the way that you can make the changes like you made during the offseason? Yeah, uh, it was tough. Uh, I don't think there's a real crystal clear black and white answer. Um, it was there was a lot of like very few ups, a lot of downs the last two years. And um, you know, the biggest thing I just always kept, I just kept going. Like, I remember I got optioned last year in the middle of the year 
And um, uh, they told me around like two, three o'clock, I think it was about three o'clock that I was going to be optioned. And um, the AAA team was here in, at home, which is only like 40 minutes away. And uh, I was like, I'm just going to go tell them I'm going to be there and I'll just, I'll head down there now. And uh, the team, the big league team was traveling that day, but I, I just, I went down there because I'm like, if I go home, I'm just going to sit there and feel sorry for myself that like baseball's not going well. And the only way that I'm going to get back here is if I just go and do it. And I felt like at that point I had made a mental adjustment and I just, I wanted to go and play and just do it, like learn. And, you know, that was the biggest thing for me is to just keep going regardless of the situation, the outcome. Yeah, it sucks, but like, it's the game. So give me a cool moment from this season uh, where an opponent, and because who cares what, you know, idiot sports writers like me say or broadcasters say, it's cool when you get affirmation from peers, something that somebody said to you, whether it was a teammate, uh, a first baseman on the other team, a pitcher, something like that, where, you know, they, they said something to you that just stuck with you to, to sort of reaffirm what you're doing. I think the best two compliments that I've gotten that like really mean a lot to me is uh, is anytime anytime somebody says, "Man, it looks effortless right now." I think that's that's the best compliment I can get from anybody. Just because anytime it's effortless, it looks effortless. Like you're doing everything right, everything's in sync, and your mind's free. You're just out there playing baseball. So that w- that's the biggest thing, or the probably the biggest one for me is anytime somebody says it looks effortless. And then the other one is you're a lot of fun to watch. I've heard that I've heard that from a lot of guys, um, and I've heard it from veteran guys, um, and like Cole Calhoun. I got to meet him this spring training, and I became like good buddies with them. And you know he's texted me a few times, and he's like, you know, dude, you're, you're a lot of fun to watch. Like checking in, watching, see what you're gonna do. And uh, that's fun because, you know, I just obviously anytime somebody says that you're fun to watch, they're paying you to come and watch you play like that. That's means a lot to me. What would the all-star game uh, with the all-star game in Seattle this year? What would that be like for you to uh, to make the team this year? And uh, yeah, how much fun would that be? Oh, man. I mean, obviously, it's a dream to play in an all-star game um, and to have it here in our home city. I mean, that would be awesome. Um, but you know, for me right now, I just got to keep focusing on what I'm doing and, you know, hopefully if that opportunity presents itself, you know, I'll soak that up. So in reading about you, there was a note that you were in a, in a home run derby. I didn't remember this. You were in a home run derby in Miami, uh, when you were in high school. Tell me about that. And was that, I couldn't remember the details of that. Did that happen in between rounds or before rounds? Were you there when judge put on that show? I was there, but uh, that was, it was like the day before the real all-star game had started. That was when we qualified. I actually, uh, I took third and um, I didn't, they only were taking the two top two guys. Uh, I got beat by one Homer um, and they were taking the top two guys. And then in between like a commercial break, you'd go out there and compete against each other. And I didn't obviously make the final two, but I was, I was at the all-star game home, the home run rather. What did you think of Judge in that event? It was pretty impressive because even then he was miss hitting balls uh, at um, at their ballpark there in Miami, and they were going out, which was crazy. Like he was, like he would absolutely murder one to left or you know center field, and then he would just miss one, and it would still like flare out over the right field fence, and it's like dang, 
Like, this guy's meant for this. All right. The big conversation in baseball this year is around rule changes. Uh, how do you like them so far? I, I really do like them. I like the speed of the game just because, um, like, you just got to – anytime if you get a bad call or, you know, um, you take a bad swing or you chase a pitch, like, you just clear slate, get back in the box, let's go. Like, it, I feel like it's bringing, like – competing in the box back to like the game. I don't think there is as much thinking going on. And for me, like when I get in the box and the timer's winding down, like all I can think about is like, it's you and me, let's do it. And uh, that's where I want to be. The AL West context seemed to change a lot in the last week. The Astros suffered two major injuries with a rotation, you know, Verlander walked away as a free agent years end. angels have gotten better. The Rangers have gotten better. Tell me what you're seeing in your division. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of talent. I mean, I think this uh, this division is tough, um, but I think with our team, what we got going here, I mean, we got a lot of special horses on this team, and um, I think that we haven't officially like really got going yet. Um, it's still so early, but I think once you start seeing us all swinging the bats, our pitching staff has been incredible. Um, we're playing great defense. Um, and once those bats just start waking up just a little bit more than we, and we've had flashes here and there, uh, but once they get going, I think we're going to be a really dangerous team in this division for sure. All right, Jared. Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, congrats on your good start. Thank you. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus. A Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. 
Lindsay Barra is the executive producer for the new documentary, It Ain't Over, about her grandfather, Yogi Barra, the Hall of Fame catcher who passed away in 2015 at age 90. And Lindsay, you and I worked at ESPN together for years. Uh, and I remember the first time that I spoke to you about your grandfather, what jumped out to me right away was that you just had such a sincere and deep love for your grandparents, uh, for Yogi and Carmen, uh, and how much you loved, how much they loved each other. Like that, that really stuck out of me. So it doesn't surprise me that you wound up doing this documentary. Tell me about that path. So, um, my parents got divorced when I was really young. I was five and my grandparents became kind of a second set of parents to me because I spent a lot of time with them. And I was incredibly, incredibly lucky to have my Grammy Carmen until I was 37 years old and my grandpa Yogi until I was 39. And I I fully understand that most people in this world do not get to have their grandparents for that long. And that was an incredible gift. And I, it gave me the opportunity to get to know them really as as people and to understand where they came from, as opposed to just thinking of them as like the people who stick extra dollars in your pockets at the holidays. You know, it, it really they were definitely my grandparents, but the relationship went was was so much bigger than that because I was able to have an adult relationship with them, um, and I did love how much they loved each other. Like you mentioned, it it was an amazing thing to watch them. Grandpa Yogi just always looked at her like he knew he'd gotten away with something. And Grammy like just always had a crush on him. And it just was super cute. And to watch them, she would say, that the reason they were married for 65 years was because was because grandpa was on the road for half of it but that's crap they were just great together there's a yogiism he said i have we have a good time together even when we're not together and that was totally true and to watch the really um amazingly selfless way that she shared him with the millions of other people on the planet who actually do love him that was an incredible thing to watch they were they were really great Give me a, uh, you know, a moment that sticks with you that uh, you weren't able to get in the doc, uh, that a memory for you that uh, you have of them together. uh, That was just super fun for you that you got to share. I mean, most of my memories of them together are, are really unremarkable. They're like your standard kid grandparent memories at like family barbecues and, and, you know, hanging out in the den, you know, watching um he liked western movies so we would watch like you know westerns on on amc um he was always watching seinfeld reruns but i remember like making meatballs um before christmas and uh thanksgiving every year grandpa we used to roll like literally like 200 little tiny golf ball sized meatballs and grammy would make them and put them in like a really big pot and we would eat them with toothpicks the next day he always had all the kids over to decorate the tree and like i i have memories that are like very um, sensatory where like I can feel him grabbing my waist and picking me up to put a, a Christmas ornament up on like one of the higher branches. But um, you know, those are a lot of little kid memories. I had a lot of big kid memories with them too, like watching ball games and, and, you know, he would come to all my hockey games in, in high school. I remember, uh, well, this is a funny one for everyone. Um, when I was in college, he used to go to the NIAF dinner a lot, the national Italian American Federation dinner. And, you know, you, you think about grandpa as a role model and, and, and um, 
someone people look up to and think of as famous. And he didn't really think of himself as famous at all. And I remember my phone ringing at like one o'clock in the morning in my dorm room. And like, you know, we wake up, we're sleeping. And my roommate's like, who the heck is that? And I answer the phone and it's grandpa Yogi. And he's goes, Lance, you awake? And I was like, I am now. What? What's up? What's the matter? He goes, nothing. I just wanted to tell you, I peed next to Al Pacino. So he was really excited to go to the bathroom and run into to Al Pacino. So he, as famous as he was, he was still in awe of the people he considered to be really famous. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. All right. You, you mentioned the word yogiism. Uh, the central premise of, of what you did uh, is that the character of Yogi Berra overshadowed his greatness, uh, his excellence, uh, as a as a player, as a manager, and you, so many people agree with you. It's pretty clear. Billy Crystal, Joe Torre, John Thorne. Uh, tell me when you began to feel that way. I think it was really that 2015 All-Star Game, which we opened the movie with. Um, right. You know, I was watching with him, and they bring out the four greatest living players, Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, Willie Mays, and they are great living players but I was sitting next to my very much alive grandpa Yogi and thinking about how many all-star games and world series wins and MVP plaques he has. And I don't think he should have replaced any of those people, but he certainly should have been out on the field with them as the five greatest living players. Um, And I think it just keeps happening. I keep telling the story last year, right before we premiered the the film at Tribeca, the film was already closed. So we couldn't include this. Yadier Molina got his 1000th RBI. And as you know, grandpa grew up in St. Louis. He was a huge St. Louis sports fan his entire life, watched a million Cardinals games, thought Yachty was the best defensive catcher in baseball for like two decades, loved Yadier. And I did a cover story on Yachty when I was at ESPN Magazine. So we we love Yachty Molina. I click on the story to read about the circumstances of his thousandth RBI. And a story pops up. The headline is Molina joins elite company. And there's a composite picture of Yachty, Pudge Rodriguez, and Johnny Bench, who all have 1,000 RBIs. And I'm thinking, what the heck? Grandpa has 1,430 RBIs, which is the record by a catcher, which will no way, no how ever be broken. And he literally isn't even in the photograph. And the idea of the documentary for me is to figuratively put him back in the picture um, in the conversation as the greatest catcher of all time and one of the greatest players of all time. And you tell this story about turning to him and, and you asked him a question as you're watching that all-star game together, if you can relate that story. When, when the guys walked out on the field? Yes. Yeah. And they, they said, um, you know, MLB, the PA announcer was, 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 and they were just kind of piping in it over the broadcast. And it says introduces the four greatest living baseball players. And I looked at grandpa and I said, are you dead? And he said, not yet. You did so many interviews. It's clear. I'm guessing you conducted the interviews with these heavy hitters. Yes. So you probably- I really set them up, but Sean, the, and you know, I helped with questions and whatnot, but Sean, the director yeah. did the actual questioning for the first round. And then he would yell to me, like, you got anything else? And to his co-producer, Mike Connors, you got anything else? So I was there for most of them, but Sean was asking the actual questions. All right. Tell me an interview that you guys got or a yes from somebody that you got. You're like, wow, this is this is cool. I mean, I I, I had a, a very clear like order that I wanted to go to get the, the interviews. And it was definitely I, I wanted as many people as possible who had either played with grandpa or had seen grandpa play 
And my number one goal was Vin Scully because he was 92 years old at the time. And, you know, we were lucky to have him as long as we did. And I didn't know how much longer he was going to be around. And I wanted that interview done immediately. And that was the first one we shot in June of um, 2019. And then I had people like um, you know, guys who he had played with, Hector Lopez, Bobby Richardson, Tony Kubek. Uh, Ralph Terry, who lives in the middle of Can- Larned, Kansas, which is two flights in four hours, no matter where you come from. I mean, just tough to get to Ralph Terry. Um, I wanted Roger Angel, who was 100 years old and had covered New York baseball since he got out of World War II. So, I mean, that that is incredible. Um, I wanted Audrey Gragiola, Joe's uh, wife, because, you know, Grammy, Grammy Carmen and Grandpa Yogi and Joe and Audrey Gragiola were thick as thieves their entire lives. And Audrey was the only one of them who was alive. So I really wanted all of those folks. Um, I also wanted people like Al Kaline and Brooks Robinson and Whitey Ford, but they were all kind of their health wasn't great and we couldn't include them. Um, and then we wanted the the Billy Crystals of the world, the people who were just fans and, and really known to be associated with the Yankees. I wanted the younger players, Jeter, Swisher, um, you know, Willie Randolph, people that um, grandpa had coached and then mentored later in his life um, just to talk about how he impacted them and, and um, you know, his impact on, on baseball in general. He really was. I mean, I, I loved, uh, I, I love the whole thing. And as it watched that, I'm like, Oh my God, he was the embodiment of the so-called American dream. Yes. He really uh, it was. feels like that. with his whole experience. I say that so often, and and I want to make this very clear that this is not, I know a lot of baseball people listen to this podcast, but if you need to bring your friends or your family members or significant others who are not baseball fans, this is not a baseball movie. This is just a a human American story. He was a first-generation Italian immigrant. I think we can all identify with being the sons and daughters or grandsons and granddaughters of immigrants or immigrants ourselves. He was uh, a veteran of the D-Day invasion. He was a machine gunner on a rocket boat off of Omaha Beach, uh, providing cover fire for our troops going ashore. And there's so many of us that can identify with being veterans and appreciate veterans. He had this beautiful 65-year love story with my grandmother. Um, He was a great father and a great grandfather. And, you know, we tell some stories about the impact he had on his kids and and everybody can identify with the lengths a parent is willing to go to to protect and in this case, save their children. Um, So I really do think that there is something that everybody can identify with in the film. Um, And I also think that because grandpa is so relatable over the years, like that's what so endeared him to people for so long. It's why so many people loved him. And he had this incredible, and I got to see this, you know, I I told you about when I covered the Yankees for the New York Times, you know, he was around the team and he would walk in and the players always related so well to him and responded to him. But he had this incredible open heart. I mean, that was pretty apparent. Uh, And and I love the story about when Jackie Robinson comes to the plate and and your uh, your grandfather's uh, behind the plate, if you can tell that story. Is that the one that Dale told? Yes. I'm not sure he said thank you for your service. Yeah. I had actually never that, that never heard that specific story before, but Grandpa and Jackie 
Um, they met in 1946 when Grandpa was playing in the minor leagues for the Newark Bears um, right after the war. And Jackie was playing for the Montreal Royals in the minors. And they actually played in the postseason. The Royals beat the Bears. And there evidently was another controversial play at the plate. And I'm, I'm not sure about the whole story. But anyway, Grandpa and Jackie <laughs> were familiar with each other before Jackie uh, broke the color barrier in 47. But when Jackie did break that color barrier, Grandpa was able to just every time they played the Dodgers, walk over there and say, hey, Jack, how you doing? Because he already knew him, you know, and that was a friendship that really endured. You know, they were they were great friends until Jackie passed in 1972. And then Grammy and Grandpa stayed very close with Rachel Robinson. And Rachel was at Grandpa's 90th birthday party in 2015. And, you know, I think we all know about the famous play at the plate in the 1955 World Series where Jackie stole home and Grandpa insisted until the day he died that Jackie had been out. But Rachel walks into Grandpa's birthday party and she sees him across a very crowded room and she holds her hands out and it makes the safe sign and grandpa's in a wheelchair and looks at her and puts up his fist makes the out sign and then she walks up and gives him a big hug and a kiss so the uh barra robinson relationship was was uh, an enduring one and you know i always say it didn't really matter whether Jackie was safe or out. The important thing was that Jackie was in and that players like my grandpa Yogi and Ted Williams and Pee Wee Reese didn't say no. And in fact, embraced them. They were kind of on the right side of the color line when it was not the right place for a lot of white men to be. And I really believe that had uh, major league baseball not integrated, the country probably wouldn't have gotten where it did in the time that it did. I think major league baseball played a big role in that. And I don't think grandpa was trying to be a civil rights activist, but I am certainly super proud that he did the right thing. All right. In the interviews you heard, uh, and as you mentioned, you you talked to so many of his peers, his teammates. uh, What were some of the things that sort of underscored what you're talking about? What a great player he was, because, you know, some of I know this and watching the video that you had in there, I got to cover Tony Gwynn for four years. Uh, and when you talked about his hands and I was watching the way yeah. that he used his hands, I was like, oh my God, that reminds me of Tony. And then I thought of Jose Altuve, you know, yep. the, the Astros second baseman who wasn't, is, as you know, is not tall. He's like five, five and a half or five, six. I remember someone saying last year, well, he's a good fastball, you know, high fastball hitter. And my thought was, well, what choice does he have? You <laughs> yeah, know? Right. He, he can cover so much of the zone. And that's the yeah. way your grandfather was as a hitter. These yeah. amazing hands, the ability to put the ball in play, but with power. He was only five. He wasn't five, five and a half, but grandpa was five foot eight and about 192 pounds when he played. And I love telling people this because their eyeballs, like their eyes get really big. Um, He used a 34 inch, 35 ounce bat, right? So a little perspective, people like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, who are a foot taller and 100 pounds heavier or 80 pounds heavier than grandpa are using probably 33 inch, 31 ounce bats nowadays. So think about this like massive, tree trunk that grandpa was swinging at the plate and he was able you know joe madden talks about how he was able to control the barrel of the bat through the strike zone and just put any pitch anywhere he wanted to people talk about him as a bad ball hitter a great bad ball hitter and 
grandpa would say they all look good to me. I like to think of that a little existentially and think about just the way grandpa viewed the world. It was, he was really great at, at making lemonade out of lemons, but um, he really could do whatever he wanted with the ball. He used to tell my grandmother said to my dad um, one time, she goes, could you imagine how good your father would have been if he actually tried at the beginning of the game? He didn't think hitting was fun when there were no men on, on base or the game wasn't on the line. He liked hitting in the late innings because it meant something and you know people talk about again the clutch hitter thing i really think that going through a d-day invasion and, and in fact and facing a real life or death situation you can't but come out of that with anything other than gratitude and perspective and he didn't look at the bottom of the ninth as pressure that wasn't pressure that was only opportunity and he loved it um but yeah, I, the the old footage, I love how quick he was. You really can see catchers are not known for their speed on the base pass, but you see grandpa like rounding first and stretching a, a single into a double or coming home. Like he really was very quick on the bases. He would get out of the crouch so quickly to make uh, plays um, in the infield. There's a photo of him that is one of my favorites of all time. Um, he's just tagged. Ted Williams out at the plate and he had to dive to make the tag. So he's hovering over the ground. He has not even landed yet. And the ball is in his right hand. He's already tagged Ted and his head is up and he's looking to try to make a play on one of the bases behind um, the play he just made. And it's just so indicative of how heads up and how involved in the game he was. So the archival footage is amazing. And, 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 you know, what you're saying about seeing his hands and, and how great he was um, at the plate and, and behind it. It's, it's tremendous. And there was but one clip you had in there that absolutely jumped out of me because he was talking about the way the, the pitchers would hold the ball, that sometimes they would give away uh, what pitch was coming. So he did his story once in Barry Bonds, and I called Tony Gwynn, who knew him well, and and I said, you know, what uh, what separates Barry from other hitters? He goes, he sees the ball sooner than any other hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he really won the balls by the pitcher's ear. And I said, Tony, how do you know that? Because I see the same friggin' thing. And I think, you know, when I when I heard your grandfather talk about that, I was like, oh, my, he that was part of his greatness. He caught in doubleheaders 100 in both ends of doubleheaders 117 times, which is absurd. Yes, (laughs) it's amazing. I keep saying, honestly, if anyone wants to take me up on it, I physical challenge any catcher in baseball (laughs) to play 18 innings and then walk down the stairs the next day. We didn't even put this in the movie, but there was a game. Grandpa was 37 years old. I think it was like in July of 62 Tiger Stadium. And uh, the Yankees played a 22 inning game, 300 and something pitches, and Grandpa caught the entire thing at 37 years old. They talk about for all the talk about bigger, stronger, faster, better conditions. I mean, my my Grandpa was as well conditioned as anybody out there in the big leagues today. So, in terms of how he responded to the character of Yogi Berra, he just seemed to like it. Just absolutely seemed to roll off his back. Yeah, uh, and he just kind of laughed at it, as you said, uh, you know, earlier on. He just didn't didn't take himself too seriously, and so he just was like went along with whatever other people said. You had interviews where you could, the questions are almost insulting in the way, way that they're phrased, and oh, he would just kind of laugh it off. It's horrifying some of the stuff that people said and wrote about him. Um, looked like an ape, looked like a gorilla, looked like a fire hydrant, looked like a fat girl running in a tight skirt. Um, too ugly to be a Yankee. What does that even mean, too ugly to be a Yankee? And also, he was adorable. I don't know what the heck people are talking about. But um, I think 
yes, he was, you know, his famous retort was, I never saw anyone hit with his face. But I think that grandpa also was just the most self-confident, self-assured human being ever without having an ounce of ego, right? He was just so confident. Dale tells a story about asking grandpa what he thought about um, when he was hitting with the bases loaded. And uh, he turned around on Dale and asked Dale what he thought about. And Dale gives all these answers like, oh my God, what, what's the pitcher going to throw? Don't swing at a bad pitch. Don't pop up. You know, don't, don't hit to this side of the field, depending on who's playing, whatever. And, and grandpa was like, you think about all of that. And Dale said, yeah, what are you thinking about? And he said, pitchers in trouble. He just was the most confident person out on the field. And I don't think he cared when anybody else um, said about him, he was just going to go out and hit the ball the next day. Yeah, and I th- thought Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, two players that I covered that felt the exact same way, that they were absolutely convinced that they were going to succeed, and and they weren't thinking about failure. I think it's part of the reason why I always, you know, when Yogi would come into the clubhouse, he and Derek definitely had a thing. Like, there was a, a great relationship there. Um, it was clear from the interviews that uh, that you all conducted he had such an impact on a lot of people. Joe Girardi, and I knew this about Joe, too, as I was yeah. – you know, watching this, I mean, he was breaking down talking about Yogi. Yeah, he was. Grandpa stayed away from Yankee Stadium for 14 years. We go into the feud with Steinbrenner in the film, and he ends up back in 1999 and gets to spend the next 14 or so years going to the ballpark and going to spring training, which really gives him an opportunity to develop relationships with Girardi, uh, Tino Martinez, Paul O'Neill, Jorge Posada, Jeter, Nick Swisher, and I think that, you know, you listen to them talk about him. They'll, they'll say like grandpa would notice things on the bench in a baseball game that no one would, would pick up. Um, Swisher says that he saved a season for him one time. Swisher was just totally slumping in spring training. Grandpa gave him one little tip about hitting at the plate. And then he ends up having his like best year ever. Um, he and Jeter would rib each other and go and go back and forth at each other. But I think Derek took a lot from, from the way grandpa's, like just mind worked and how just simply he looked at the game and was able to boil down complicated things into just a statement like swing at a strike. Right. Um, But I also think that as much as grandpa gave to those guys, they gave a lot back to him. If, If he doesn't make up with George and go back to the ballpark, I mean, I don't know what would have happened. I think they added probably a decade to his life because he was just so happy at the ballpark and being involved with the Yankees again, just, so much joy came back to his life when he was able to go back to Yankee Stadium. And that was a complicated relationship. You know, you uh, you included a, a video of when Yogi was introduced as the manager by George. <laughs> and, uh, you know, George is very serious. And then your grandfather steps in front of the microphone's bank, which is really high. And Yogi is like, I can't see, just can't see anybody. And he essentially asked for, you know, some sort of a step. So they brought out a footlocker for him to stand on. And you, you flash to George and George has no sense of humor about it at all. Like his expression, you could see that. And this is what I'll always believe. And I wanted your perspective on this. I don't think your grandfather's perspective on George really ever changed that much. Like I, I know that they gave their apologies, but I think he moved on essentially for uh, for you guys, for the family, for for fans, for everyone enjoying for himself to get back to Yankee Stadium. I think he made his peace with George, but I don't think his views on George ever really changed. What do you think? I don't know. I, I think he made his peace with George. And I, I, I think that grandpa, you know, people think about that 14 years as a grudge. 
but he didn't, I don't think he really held a grudge. I think once he didn't have any respect for the way, way George had fired him because he sent Clyde King to do it and didn't come and fire him himself. I think if George had fired him himself, it would have been fine. He just wanted people to behave in an upstanding manner. And I think once George apologized, it it was kind of over. You see, there is also that footage from an old timer's day. I think it was. And grandpa is in a cart and he's really old. And George, like almost on the mouth for crying out loud. And George is sobbing. I mean, that's not two men who don't like or respect each other. You know, I, I do think that it ended up being water under the bridge at that point. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that, but it's just, you know, grandpa will also say, you know, George made a mistake. I've made mistakes too. And, 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 and that's it. You move on. All right. You know, better than I do for <laughs> sure. The other thing that really jumped out at me when I would uh, talk to him uh, was how current his knowledge was, Oh, yeah. you know, this, you know, players leave the sport they're away. Their knowledge is 20 years old. Your grandfather watched players all the time. Oh, I remember okay. having a very specific conversation with him about a young catcher named Victor Martinez, you know, <laughs> playing in Cleveland. And I was like, wow, he is on yeah. it. Like, he's a serious fan. He watched tons and tons of games. He watched every Yankee game, every Cardinals game he could get. And this was before, like, the MLB package was available. Like, I don't know if he even ever had digital cable. But, you know, he, he was watching all the games. Um, he would stay up and watch whatever the West Coast game was that was on TV. Um, he loved to watch the Seinfeld reruns on PBS from 11 to 11.30, so he was always up at least till 11 waiting for the Seinfeld, and then he would go back to some baseball after that. Yeah, he he watched a ton, and he loved to watch, and I think he just loved to, to kind of decipher the puzzle pieces that he was seeing in, in front of him. So, yeah, you could talk to him about pretty much anybody. All right, so tell me how folks can see It Ain't Over. So It Ain't Over opens in 100 theaters in the tri-state area, New York, uh, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and Los Angeles this weekend, May the 12th. And then it opens in St. Louis, uh, Dallas, Philadelphia, Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, a whole bunch more on May the 19th. And then they're adding even more cities each week after that throughout May and June until it reaches a full national release. Uh, It is theaters only um, for the foreseeable future, hopefully for the summer. So literally coming soon to a theater near you. All right, Lindsay. Well, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. Uh, And as they say, I just, I remember how much love you had for your grandfather and this is a great way of expressing it. Cool. It was so nice to see you, Buster. And uh, sometime down the line, tell, tell the story on your podcast about grandpa giving you a jacket. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I love that story. Thank you. Thanks so much, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster Bleacher tweets for a Wednesday. We've got a pair of questions on service time manipulation. Uh, a couple, a bunch of words here that have not been mentioned uh, recently on the pod. Used to be a hot topic. Andrew DeSalvo writes in after seeing the tweet from Sarah Langs on Eli De La Cruz's power. I realize that I haven't heard much about service time manipulation this year. Have the CBA rule changes altered behaviors, or am I looking in the wrong places? Uh, Zach Beeson writes in with the CBA being finalized through 2026. It seems service time manipulation fell by the wayside. Is that something players still care about, or was it all talk? So to give some context, De La Cruz last night, or was it two nights ago, hit three balls in the same game, 116 miles per hour plus. 
And as Sarah noted in her tweet, no team has had that. This is someone who's a, you know, a highly touted prospect in the Cincinnati Reds organization. And so I think the, you know, Andrew's uh, text, uh, you know, essentially asking the question about uh, De La Cruz and high-end prospects and are they having service time manipulated? There's no doubt that some of that behavior has changed uh, because there's, you know, more incentive for teams to get players to big leagues. There's less incentive to service time manipulate. I do think there have been some cases where we've seen that happen the last couple of years. Uh, but I also think that that's not as important as the tanking issue. Do <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? Those yeah. two things are kind of tied hand in hand. Yeah, totally. That has not changed at all, in my opinion. We're still seeing teams tank more than ever. Hello, Oakland Athletics. Uh, you know, this year being an example of that, that to me is more problematic. And I was actually shocked that the player association didn't fight harder to push back on that. What'd you think? Yeah, I'm with you. They're, they are tied hand in hand. So while we haven't said the word service time manipulation, when we talk about tanking, it's all wrapped up together. Uh, and a good segue there with the A's, Mr. Jakey writes in, I don't get why the owners are going along with this. They don't get an expansion team in Vegas if the A's move and don't get that money. Manfred has also said he's willing to give up the relocation fee. John Fisher was one of the top earners last year out of all the owners in baseball. Hmm, weird how that happens. And it yeah. leaves the Giants with all of Northern California. Wow. So three teams share Southern California. Why are the owners okay with this? So, uh, Mr. Jakey's reference to the Oakland ballpark situation. I don't know if you saw the news yesterday, Taylor, but uh, and I'm not going to get too deeply into it, uh, but essentially the athletics are saying, well, you know, that site that we talked about a few weeks ago, never mind. We found another site, and <laughs> all we need is $400 million in public funding. Only. Yeah, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll go back to the rule that I've had year after year after year in this situation with the Oakland Athletics ballpark. Uh, I'm not going to – I'm not going to really pay attention until someone puts a shovel in the ground <laughs> because it does feel like a total bluff at this point by the A's to get a better deal out of Oakland. Oh my God. Um, Mr. JK would push, push back on this. Uh, you know, if they, if, if the A's do wind up moving to Las Vegas, major league baseball will still find a second site for expansion. Um, and we've talked in recent weeks, Jeff had the story about Salt Lake City, and I it said, I think Nashville's a fait accompli. They're going to have expansion, but mm -hmm. it is messy, it is ugly, and as a result of it, the athletics are, are putting out, you know, they're the living embodiment of the movie Major League and how they're <laughs> playing this season, and it's terrible. Yeah. And I agree with you that I wish the other owners would step up and say, Look, we get it. You need a new ballpark, but you're embarrassing all of us. You're barring on the credibility of the rest of the sport and the Oakland Athletics with the tanking, with the, the, the payroll as low as it is. It's awful. And I don't understand why they don't worry about that as opposed to, say, like a team like the Padres or the Mets spending a lot of money. There you go, Mr. Jakey. Uh, GW at Garrison WRN writes, and who is the worst looking sponsor on their jerseys? Uh, I did. I went down a little rabbit hole late last night. Um, I think the Marlins ADT one has got to be the worst. It's very goofy. Uh, the Mets, New York Presbyterian Hospital. It's not proportional. The Reds isn't great either. A good logo uh, on a jersey has to blend in with the jersey, I think is what I, it comes down to. Yeah, but I would say this, and I'm curious to see if you agree, because I'm not really a visual person. Like, I don't notice a lot of these things. Yeah. I, I see them play, and I'm, I'm not really paying attention. I don't really care. And maybe I, maybe it's all those years of watching soccer. 
mm-hmm. uh, and seeing and just being accustomed to to logos. And I don't I don't really pay attention to it. Um, I, you know, I, I I think the Mets one. And when I first saw it, it felt like it was you know having that block of space on their shoulder. That seemed weird to me. But generally speaking, I think it's not as big of a deal as people thought it was going to be. No, actually, I think it's actually done pretty tastefully compared to the soccer ones. I mean, the soccer ones dominate the front of the jersey. These ones are just arm patches. Um, you know, the ones they do in the NBA are like a little patch, like on the, you know, the upper shoulder, upper chest area. So they're not terrible because you're right. They're on the side of of the jersey. Like you're not looking at that. You're not really fixated on it. Um, I think when you zoom in, like, yeah, they might not all look great, but it's really I- not a big deal. I want them to look like NASCAR automobiles. I think that would be fun. <laughs> just have one team go rogue and just fill out the whole jersey with a you know this maze of of uh, you know sponsors. What do you think about that? I think. Uh, I mean, John- you know what? The A's. The A's. I, should I, I do you took that. the words out of my mouth, Buster. <laughs> just like if you're the A's and you don't care and you don't really, you're not worried about putting a product, then just do that. You know. Yeah. And meanwhile. The stinking Atlanta Braves players can't have that oversized hat because they're violating some sort of a rule. Dumb, <laughs> dumb, dumb, dumb. Let's go to Tom Striegel at TJ Striegel. He writes, and why no love for the the Nats? Buster picked them to win, to finish with less than 60 wins. They are currently on pace to finish with 69 wins and are three games out of a wild card spot. Now, that is a glass half full. Tom, you are that person, no doubt about it. When you, your team's going to win fewer than 70 games and you're talking about it being a big year of progress, you know? But I would say this. A year ago, we were talking about the Orioles. They were on an early they, early season pace. Were they going to win about 70 games? And and I remember at that time thinking, nah, I don't think so. And they wound up, uh, you know, flirting with the playoffs. Yeah. JoJo Gray, fun to watch. Check him out. Heim Katz. Yep. At Kamish Elrights and hey Taylor, the so-called Oriole fan, hope you lost a lot of money betting on Max Fried instead Ooh. of my man Dean Kramer. Buster should make you swallow your Oriole hat. <laughs> swallow your Oriole hat, Taylor. Oh, here I'll take it off here. Everyone, out for you, Heim. Thank you. Okay, there you go, Heim. And Don Irvine is our last tweet, also tweeting about the Orioles. He writes, and the Orioles held their own against the Braves over the weekend. And even though they lost the series, does this mean that they are a playoff contender this year or is it a year too early? They're contenders right now, Buster. They got a chance to take a series against the Rays tonight. It's been a yeah, lot of Yeah, no fun. doubt about it. Look, I, when I turned on my power ranks this week, I, I can't remember where I had them. I think like six or seven. If you are near the top of the division, well, they're not really near the top of the division American League East because the Rays are kind of running away with it at this point. But if you're in second place in the American League East, the best division in baseball, you're a contender. There's no doubt about that. Did you see, I, I retweeted, I think it was uh, Cespedes Family Barbecue. They, they tweeted the ALE standings tacked on top of the AL Central standings and all the teams were in order. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I tweeted out this morning about the, you know, divisional context being so important. The Kansas City Royals, I think you would agree with me, are one of the worst teams in baseball. They're 10 and 27. They're nine and a half games out of first place. uh, And they're in last place in the American League Central. The Yankees are nine games out of first place. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they're in last place in their division and they're three games over 500. (laughs) So anybody, we, you know, last night, Carlos Correa was booed at the end of the twins game. The guardians are struggling for runs. The tigers are a little bit of a mess early in the year. It's early. Like even the white Sox, if you told me the white Sox would be in first place in three months, would that be a shock? 
No. Given how bad that division is. Yeah. It's all about context, too. I mean, that's why the, the Yankees fans look look so bizarre when they're crying about being three games over 500. They've really wow. <laughs> a life of privilege is what that says to me. But uh, <laughs> if you disagree, hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. Keep them firing. Uh, and uh, we'll be back on Friday with Sarah Abbott at the helm. That's it for today. My thanks to Jared Kelnick, Lindsey Barra, Boog Shambi, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Taylor, you need to give us or leave us a rant for Friday. Ooh. I mean, you're going to be gone, you know, and Sarah is, not, I mean, I'm sorry, but Sarah going on a rant, it just doesn't fit because she's like too nice of a person. You, on the other hand, not too nice of a person. Can you leave us some kind of a rant for Friday? I guess I could. Although I, I have to say, I'd be interested to hear Sarah go off about something because it would kind of flip the sweat, the the script on you know her personality okay. as a whole. So okay, I, and you chat. know what? She she may have been building up in this time away from baseball, <laughs> not having a microphone available. Yeah, maybe she's got something she just wants to rant on. She's she's still she's probably mad about the Phillies. You know, she maybe she's mad at you saying they're ready for takeoff and they've been struggling. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, st- <laughs> Thanks for listening. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.